IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we review new albums by Always and Bjork and investigate the current number one song in America by alt-R&B artist Steve Lacey. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He celebrated the 10th anniversary of Lunarism by doing 10 extra power lifts at the gym. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I'm like just desperately looking back at my original review of Lonerism to see if I called it acid rock on steroids or steroid rock on acid. <laughs> Like just a way to like use like both cliches at once. I, I it is the have you it is the have most. Have you ever used that? Have you used that cliche by the way? Which one? The uh, <laughs> the on drugs. Like this is something on drugs. Because I I have done that. I think every critic has probably done that at some point. This is like the Berenstein Bears on acid, or this is like uh, Bex Odelay on crack cocaine. I feel like everyone has probably done that. I'm gonna cop to it. It is. One of the top ten cliches that appear in in uh, not just music writing but all forms of criticism. Yeah, sometimes you just got to hit that word count or like fuck it. Like I've been writing this uh, for eight hours. Like I'm just gonna do this, and you know what? I better better luck next time trying to come up with an original thought. You know. Well, it's also the thing of how do you describe something that's like something else, but it's a more extreme version of it. Mm-hmm. You know, in the on drugs thing, it kind of works perfectly for that. I don't know what else you could do. You, you, I mean, I guess you could say this is like the Berenstein Bears at Burning Man. You know, like <laughs> like Burning Man could be the new thing. Like that shows that you're a more extreme version of it. I I don't know why I keep going to Berenstein Bears here. I I, I have Berenstein Bears on the brain, but uh, I don't know. I'm not going to begrudge someone. If they do the on drugs thing in a review, even though it is, uh, it's been used a million times because I've been guilty of it, you know, there before the grace of God. Yeah. So, but yeah, maybe I'm going to throw that out there. Bring up Burning Man. Use Burning Man the, in that. The analogy. Bernstein Bears of Burning Man. I, I do like that. Yeah. It's got two burns. It's very, it, it, it rolls off the tongue very easily. This record is like Lord at Burning Man. While shooting heroin, you can mix and match. <laughs> I, the I'd listen to that. Um, by the way, I think we mentioned this before. Like the so and so on drugs. Like I choose now to think of the band The War on Drugs in that way. Like there, it's the war, but the war is on drugs, not like the war against oh, yeah. drugs. It's a much cooler name. That's true. Like you're imagining war, but everyone's on drugs. But that's basically <laughs> Vietnam, right? That's what Vietnam was. So you could just call your band Vietnam, which there was a band called Vietnam. There was? That one. There was. Hey, Holy the- shit. This is really remembering some guys. This is like around the. Yeah. Weren't they like a contemporary of like Harlem, that band? Yeah, but they were a little. Uh, they weren't garage rock, really. I think they were uh, sort of. Wooden ships. It's hard to describe. Maybe <laughs> they weren't they weren't rocking though. It was more of like this sort of druggy folk rock. I reviewed one of their records for Pitchfork. I think it got a four point nine, <laughs> and I was dragged in some corners of the internet for that because I, I think they're from Texas. Okay, the band Vietnam. They're probably from maybe Texas. Austin, Texas. They're either from Texas or like Santa Cruz. Yeah. So, but anyway. 
<laughs> I'm looking at this review. The, it, the, you guys got to look at this. It's called An American Dream, but like there's a period in front of the A and the dream. This is like titled like a Kid Cudi album. Wow. <laughs> what year was that? Was that like this 20- is 2013. <laughs> I was going to say 2013. Okay. Uh, that's another one. You know, like you brought up the Jackson Scott review I wrote, <laughs> which I do not remember, but I remember the Vietnam uh, review. Uh, we're getting sidetracked though. Here we gotta go back to lonerism. Ten year anniversary. Tame Impala. Uh, one of the big rock records, really, of the last twenty years. I feel like this is an album where, if I were a teenager when it came out, that I would think of it the way I think about OK Computer or Siamese Dream. Like it, it feels like that kind of mind blowing record. And I wanted to get your take on this because I feel like in the Tame Impala community, and maybe this is also the IndieCast community, that there's this break that exists between Lonerism, which is the the peak of early Tame Impala. It's the second record, comes after Inner Speaker. This is like their psychedelic rock era. This is like their Dunian adjacent <laughs> era. And then you have Currents comes out three years later. It's the third record. That becomes the album that for many more people, in a way, that's like the first Tame Impala album. It's it's probably like if you heard less I Know the Better and that was your introduction to the band, you may not even know the first two records. Um, and I find that there's this split sometimes. If you are a lonerism person, you might not like Currents. And if you love Currents, you might not even know what lonerism is. Where do you stand on this divide? Because I have an answer to this, but I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I've often wondered like what my opinion of lonerism would be like if I had heard it in college. Like it would definitely, it would definitely be at least as mind blowing as uh, Uncle Science Fiction was at the time. But I would say that like I, I had the was that a sarcastic and, thing or was that a genuine <laughs> shout out to I Uncle mean, Science it's Fiction? A, it, it's a little bit of both. I think people who know me know how I feel about Uncle Science Fiction, and also like Kevin Parker is exactly the kind of dude who, if he's not been on an Uncle album, like, I think they could have gotten him on one of those, like, 2010 Uncle albums. Like, Yeah, we, we should we should make clear, for those who don't know, it's Uncle, comma, science fiction, not Uncle Science Fiction. It almost <laughs> sounds like that could be the name of the album, but Uncle, uh, was that James Lavelle? James Lavelle and uh, DJ Shadow, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a big record. I, I don't know, I've not listened to that in a long time, but, you know, sophomore year of college, that was the shit. It absolutely was. Um, got really, really got job by that '90s list. But anyway, um, I oh, reviewed yeah. both. Yeah, I reviewed both Lonerism and Currents, and Currents uh, got a higher score. Um, and for me, like Lonerism, uh, you're right in that there is a split. The first two Tame Impala records, like I really, like you said, Dunian adjacent. Like I really thought there was a possibility that their career arc would be more like a a woods on steroids you know like they're they 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 do they they're a band that like satisfies the same um you know need as woods except like they're more popular but currents is definitely the one like that is a 2010 indie kid starter pack type album um i think aside from say lost in the dream uh by the war on drugs currents is probably the rock album that has done more to determine the sound of, uh, like, you know, late aughts rock. And, you know... Like, right, that I, album, and we're also going to be talking about Always Later. They're part of that as well, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, 
probably got to throw a Mac DeMarco record in there as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, probably yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah, but definitely yeah, Tame Impala Currents launched a thousand <laughs> electro-pop indie <laughs> records in its wake. Absolutely. And I think maybe that's why um, I had mentioned this on Twitter, how like Currents is an album. Like it's the, if not the worst Tame Impala album, it's the one that I always like less than I remember when I play it. I think maybe the lack of baggage on Slow Rush and Inner Speaker make me enjoy it more. And, you know, there, there are some songs on Currents like, you know, Past Life and uh, Love Paranoia, a song I cannot remember a thing about. Uh, oh, those are great songs. Heard... Those are great songs, though. Uh, I think um, slow. I think Slow Rush is by far their weakest record. I don't think that's even close. Yeah. Although I like the Slow Rush, um, but I don't know. I feel like Lonerism is actually less consistent than Currences. I I feel like the last third of Lonerism doesn't stick as well for me, and part of that is because it just opens so strong that. I am almost too blown away to listen to the rest of the record. So maybe I'm just not giving enough time to the final third, but I feel like Currents is the more consistent album and Lonerism has the higher peaks. And if I had to pick one, I would probably pick Lonerism, but I love Currents. I was going to say that I don't subscribe to the binary. I like both records a lot. It is interesting though to think, will they ever return to the Dunian adjacent sound? And I doubt it. (laughs) Because the currents, the post-currents period, it just put them on a whole other plane of, of popularity. Um, there is a part of me, though, that would love to hear Kevin Parker write a song as fun and as dumb as Elephant again. You know? <laughs> I don't think Kevin Parker would like that, though. No, he, he, he hates that song, but I, <laughs> I, I still love that song. It, for, yeah. I appreciate it for what it is. It is the greatest wolf mother song of all time. <laughs> uh, and I mean, that's the song that got them on rock radio. I mean, I, that might be the only song that rock radio still plays by them. Although, I guess... I don't know. Like I, I know the better. I feel is like they're en- like an enormous hit for them. Like I think that's like kind of a that's like probably approaching like billions as far like a billion as far as their streaming. So. I, th- I, I think it is a billion or very close. It, it's over a billion. It's one point one billion. Is that a radio song or a streaming hit though? Does that get? I, I think mean, it's a radio song. Okay, I'm definitely in Southern California. I'm sure <laughs> that gets played a lot. Like here, like my friend works at is a program director for the big rock station here, and I remember him saying when Currents came out that they weren't playing a lot of that record uh, for whatever reason, because uh, it just seems like that's there's so many good radio songs on there. But at any rate, um, you lean more towards Lunarism, though, right? I mean, like that's your Tame Impala record. I do, and I'm like thinking to myself, what we really need is a splinter uh, podcast called Dunian Adjacent, where we just talk about like <laughs> Vietnam and wooden ships and like all those bands on Mexican Summer from back in the day. Yeah, I don't. I mean, Vietnam, the band, <laughs> which again, the War on Drugs. If they are the War on Drugs, they could rename themselves Vietnam. Um, they're not as um, psych rocky as. Dunian and, and Tame Impala. I can't believe we're talking about Vietnam this much. We're going to be moving <laughs> Vietnam units based on this episode. There's going to be tons of streams uh, because of this conversation. But no, put on Lonerism this weekend. I that album totally holds up. I, I really feel like record. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and yeah, there's a part of me that would love to hear Kevin Parker return to that kind of record. I doubt that will happen. But you know, 
it would be cool if he did because I think he's really good at it. But maybe he realized I'm not gonna make a record in this style as good as Lonerism. It's only gonna be diminished returns. So I'm just gonna make songs that sound like Michael Jackson instead. Yeah, I mean, not I. I can't can't knock it. Slow Rush is good. You know, it's like it's not one that I listen to all the time, but it's always better than I remember because I always think, wait a minute, did I like this album or not? So. It's a, it, it's like real 40 chess strategy with that one. Can I just say quick, this is a, a quick tangent because we have a, well, we don't have a lot to get to today, but we have a fair <laughs> amount to get to today. Next week is the week we have a lot to get to. Uh, but I just want to say, I like celebrating album anniversaries. I think it's a fun thing. I see people complain about this sometimes. And, and by people, it really is usually the same kind of person. It's a middle-aged, probably male semi-retired music writer who <laughs> hates oh like why are there all these anniversary pieces blah 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 just calm down lots of new music gets written about every week i think it's fun to revisit a classic album there's always younger people who maybe don't know the record and it's good to reintroduce it to them and it's fun to talk about records from the past that we love as well as talking about new music you know you can Celebrate the past and live in the present simultaneously. It's not an either-or thing. And in that spirit, I also have to shout out Automatic for the People. Turned 30 years old. Actually, on the day that we're recording, it's the 30th anniversary of the release of that record. Hugely monumental record to me. There's probably at least one 21-year-old listener of this podcast mm-hmm. who has never heard Automatic for the People. I'm telling you, put it on. Great record. Uh, you can skip the side Wonder Sleeps tonight, but the rest of the record really strong uh so yeah i don't know i i like anniversaries i like that we do this i think it's a fun thing especially on social media it's probably the least harmful form of conversation that takes place in that sphere yeah i mean i gotta give a shout out to this record as well like i remember getting this on cassette for hanukkah (laughs) like i had only known (laughs) rem as like the uh shiny happy people slash losing my religion band and then i saw the video for uh drive where like I, it's, I believe it's just Michael Stipe in a black and white video just ha- being like crowd surfed. And I'm thinking, man, this, this band's dark as fuck, man. <laughs> like this is, <laughs> by the way, let's also give a shout out to a couple other albums that were released on October 6th, uh, 1992. Uh, a little something called Grave Dancers Union. Oh my by Soul God. Asylum and what? Our Time in Eden by 10,000 Maniacs. What a well, day. Well, it's funny you bring up Grave Dancers Union because we're going to be having. A little bit more Soul Asylum talk in our mailbag segment. Hell so yeah. it's fortuitous. I did not know Grave Dancers Union, which is definitely an album I bought back <laughs> in the day. Somebody to Shove. I remember Ooh. hearing that song and being like, this is an awesome song. And that's a good <laughs> record. That's a, that, there's some good t- uh, tunes on that album. Uh, but we will get to that here in our mailbag and. Thank you all, by the way, for writing to us. It's always great to hear from our listeners. You can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Ian, do you want to read this letter? I do. So this comes to us from Keith from San San Clemente, California. Shout out to San Clemente. Where's San Clemente, California? Is that by you? It is. It's uh, kind of Orange County. I guess I would call it South Orange County. It's... um, yeah, usually like the first place you see like on the way to LA that like it, it, you have like Camp Pendleton and then nothing and then San Clemente. Okay. So, I've been there about, before. Learning about Southern California. I love it. I, if we get a uh, a letter from like Rogers, Minnesota, I can school you <laughs> on where Rogers is. 
by the way, if we have any listeners in Rogers, Minnesota, you're not obligated to write us a letter, and I will read it on the air. Uh, why don't you read Keith's letter, Ian? All right, so... When you guys reviewed Alex G's new album, I was surprised you never discussed how his song Runner seems to be subconsciously plagiarized from Soul Asylum's Runaway Train. Ah, from Grave Dancers Union, the big hit from that record. Indeed, one of many. Black gold, without a trace. Uh, if you've never noticed the similarity, I encourage you to listen to the songs back to back and then imagine Alex G cringing at the thought of having accidentally ripped off a band as uncool as Soul Asylum. Curious if you guys have noticed other cases of subconscious plagiarism in indie rock. Another obvious example I can think of is Claro's Bags, which has a melody that is jarringly similar to Taylor Dane's Tell It to My Heart. Oh my god. That's a Finally, finally got the Taylor Dane reference in. Yeah. Just an indie rock touchstone, Taylor Dane. I mean, you're not totally wrong. Um, she anyways, might be at keep, this point. She yeah, might be exactly. At this, like, did, did she make the 80s Pitchfork list? Any, like, Taylor uh, Dane albums? Fuck, I don't know. We'll find out. Maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. put the intern on that yes. to investigate <laughs> Taylor Dane. So, anyways, keep up the great work. Yours is the only music theme podcast around that I find interesting enough to keep my overstuffed podcast rotation. Thank you, Keith. Wow. Thanks, Keith, for listening to the show and uh, and giving us such a good question here. You know, after I saw this letter, I, I googled Alex G. Soul Asylum, and I noticed that a lot of people have noted the supposed similarity between Runner and Runaway Train. I think even in his New York Times profile, they make a reference to Runaway Train. So this is something a lot of people have talked about. I just want to say quick, I don't think Alex G. would be embarrassed no. to be linked to Soul Asylum. He seems like a guy that... Uh, is all over the map in terms of what he listens to. And, you know, look, we're sort of in a post-embarrassment world when it comes to music. Like, you're not really supposed to be embarrassed about anything. Although I think there's some things you should be embarrassed about. Just in general. We could all be more embarrassed. We all need a little bit of shame in our life, I think. But in terms of music, you know, we are, we've been conditioned to not judge people on what they listen to. Um, I have to say, I'm, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. I didn't really, I don't really think that this holds water personally. I understand it's a mid-tempo acoustic song that has a 90s vibe, and he says run in the chorus in a way that is maybe similar to Dave Perner on Runaway Train, but I don't really feel like the melody is that similar. To me, this is another example, and we see this all the time now in indie music, of like a Gen Z artist or a millennial artist drawing on the 80s and 90s and playing songs that kind of sound like an 80s or 90s song, but like they're not directly ripping it off. It's more about jacking a vibe. Like there's so much music now from indie singer songwriters that sounds like Sheryl Crow's Every Day is a Winding Road. <laughs> you know? And I don't yes. think there's any one song that is directly ripping it off, but I could say of like a dozen songs that it kind of reminds me of that song. Um, I also feel like there's some bands like where this is their whole act is jacking someone else's vibe. Like the 1975, their song, It's Not Living If It's Not With You, which is a song I actually like. But whenever I hear it, I always think of Go West's King of Wishful Thinking from the Pretty Woman soundtrack. And I don't think it really rips that song off. It, again, it's just jacking a vibe from the 80s and 90s. So to me, that's what Alex G is doing do you disagree? Do you think it sounds like Runaway Train? 
I absolutely think it sounds like Runaway Train. More <laughs> like it's it's not so much the melody, but the cadence. Like da 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 da, da. like that part. It's like uh, and you add Run in there and kind of this like uh, nineteen. I, I think someone mentioned that it sounded like nineteen ninety two MTV Unplugged style music, which. Look, uh, this remi- I, and I don't think Alex G would be embarrassed about this. It reminds me a little bit of um, two years ago when Soccer Mommy had a song called Crawling in My Skin. People were like, oh, is she ripping off Linkin Park? Um, and she's like, yeah, I, I know. And it's like not quite a Linkin Park homage. But, you know, it's not like she's completely unaware of it. But, you know, it's fun. I, I think it was funny that um, Keith mentioned uh, Claro's bags as the most prominent example of subconscious theft or subconscious vibe jacking to use par- your parlance. But there's one song in that album, Sophia, which uh, the melody sounds exactly like uh, the Manchester Orchestra song, The Mistake from A Black Mile to the Surface. And that one sounds exactly like Billy Joel's Moving Out. So, like, I have, like, those three songs completely locked in my head. I feel like a lot of people have kind of jacked uh, the Billy Joel moving out melody, or at least the cadence. Well, you know, it's it's right there. It's a, uh, it's a garden of uh, musical inspiration, that song. So I, I totally understand why mm-hmm. people would be jacking the moving out vibe. I just want to uh, point out quick, um, I looked this up. <laughs> Alex G was born on February 3rd, 1993. Mm. Uh, Runaway Train was released as a single on June 1st, 1993. So uh, that song entered the wild of MTV uh, four months after Alex G was born. Maybe he was in a crib, in his crib with his parents, and he saw that song and it just seeped into his consciousness and it's only coming out now. I mean, it is like someone of our generation you know, aping a like Seals and Crofts song or something. I mean, you know what I mean? Like he doesn't have any direct connection to that song generationally. It's just an old song maybe that he heard at the grocery store and and it seeped in. Um, But yeah, I don't know, man. Soul Asylum, Assance. Maybe we're going to have that here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, they, they, they fought for social issues like, you know, runaway kids, uh, black gold that was kind of political in some ways it's about oil right it's a it, i believe it's about oil like wars um, for like a war for for oil which you know never happened again after 1992 <laughs> so soul asylum took care of that dave perner went to the white house i mean they invited him to the white house for runaway train yeah it's uh well you know for those who don't know or remember the the video for runaway train featured pictures of runaway kids and was there a phone number that yes. you could call if you saw the kid? Um, is this as big of a deal now? I remember when we were growing up, you know, you'd see the milk cartons with the kid on it that, that ran away or was missing. Uh, you got the Dave Perner, Soul Asylum, Runaway Train phenomenon. Um, is anyone today going to make a music video with runaway kids in it? And then we can call if we've seen the kid. I mean... Is this just something that existed because we didn't have the internet at that time? Yeah, so this like, happens on Twitter. All, like people will post, like, "Hey, this per like there does there by the, yeah there isn't a need for it in the same way that there was in 1993, which is you know a sign of societal progress. So yes, we we've advanced beyond the need to have Dave Perner 
you know, and the other guys in the band. I, I, I really thought I was going to remember their names. I feel it's embarrassed. Dave Murphy is the guitar player, I believe. Carl <laughs> Mueller was the uh, <laughs> bass player. He passed away. And then they've R. had, R. like, a variety of different drummers. That sounds about right. I feel like Soul Asylum's a band with, like, 25 different drummers. Yeah, they have, like, the core membership, and then people come in and out of the band. I just love this idea that in the 90s that Soul Asylum had to fill the void for the internet. Like, the internet didn't exist yet. <laughs> so Soul Asylum had to perform the duties. I think, like, if you went to a Soul Asylum show, you could, like, shout out questions to the band, and then they would have to look it up and answer it for you. You know, because there was no Google. You couldn't Google it. You had to Soul Asylum it, you know? You had to be, Dave Perner, uh, where can I find a, a veterinarian that's close to my house? And then he would, like, stop playing, and he'd have to get a phone book out and find out the nearest local veterinarian. That's how this life is, was in the 90s. This is like a Saturday Night Live skit in 1993 <laughs> that like you air like really towards the end. Well, no, they, they, they'd have to air it now, though, because there was no internet. So so we didn't even know that that was even a funny thing. You, if there are any SNL writers listening, I think this is a solid concept. A sketch set in 1993 where people have to shout, Questions of Soul Asylum, because uh, there's no Google yet. Uh, Look what happens when there isn't a 1975 record for us to debate. This is Vietnam and Soul Asylum as the internet. I love, love this episode. Love it. Uh, let's get to our list of topics here. Uh, the first item on the agenda is the new Always album. It's called Blue Rev. Always, of course, is a dream pop band from Canada. This is their third record. Their first album came out in 2014. That was their self-titled record. Then they followed it up in 2017 with Anti-Socialites. If you can do the math, this is the first Always album in five years. Uh, They worked with Sean Everett on this record, who has worked on the last uh, few War on Drugs records. He's also produced The Killers, Alabama Shakes, many other people. Um... I reviewed this record for Uproxx. You can check out my review after you're done listening to this episode. Um, So I like the record a lot, and I'll have more to say about that. But I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Ian. I know you profiled always, and Mm -hmm. it's not up at the time that we're recording, but it should be up by the... It actually just went up. (laughs) It just went up. Okay, so I haven't read it yet. I have no idea really what you think of this album. What's your take on uh, the new Always record? Well, before we get into that, I read your profile and like, what are you doing with this Diet Mountain Dew slander? I'm like drinking one right now. I think we need to liberate people to have Diet Mountain Dew instead of coffee in the morning. Well, okay. So I made a joke in my review where I talked about, and this is something that has come up in other articles about always, that this record uh, is a little heavier then the first two records, they recorded a lot of it live. So it has that live band sound. The guitars are a little louder this time around. And I just made a joke that's saying that this is the heaviest always record. It's like saying that Diet Mountain Dew is the healthiest form of toxic waste. Mm. Uh, just trying to point out that like it's still not that heavy, but it's like <laughs> heavy for an always record. And this is the thing that you pull out of the review. I think this is great that of all the things I wrote in that review... The Diet Mountain Dew quip <laughs> is the one that's stuck in your craw. Um, look, I drink soda in the morning too, so oh, cool. I'm I, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I just felt like Mountain Dew as a concept is funny, uh, so just working that into any sort of quip 
you're already you know there seventy five percent of the time. By the way, that could be another thing. Instead of saying on drugs, you could say this is like the Berenstein Bears on Mountain Dew. <laughs> on That's diet like a, Mountain Dew. Well, yeah, but diet Mountain Dew it it, it implies that it's watered down. So ah. is there like a ultra Mountain Dew? Like where they yes, put even more sugar in it? There is code red. There is so uh. I've actually I've actually used this because I review a lot more metal and like new metal adjacent stuff than you do. So I talk about Mountain Dew Code Red, which is like actively marketed as gamer fuel by the way i do think it is like i i do think this is relevant to this album because it's called blue rev after what is i guess the canadian version of sparks or like four loco that won't kill you it's like this alco pop that's like blue like windex and um when i interviewed uh molly from the band she just talks about like how she's never had a cold one in her entire life it's the sort of thing that you drink after it's been sitting in someone's book bag in a locker for the entire day of eleventh uh, grade. But um, yeah, as far as like what I think about this record, um, you know, having interviewed uh, Molly Rankin from the band, we talked mostly about fantasy basketball the entire time, which is I think really how uh, interviews should go. Like I would much rather talk about uh, fantasy basketball, and I think like most artists would rather talk about fantasy basketball than an album they spent like the past five years of their life making is she but, a toronto raptors fan huge okay. huge rap Makes like sense extremely knowledgeable like when i interviewed her on zoom it was her her picture was that of uh, precious Lachua and fred van fleet uh um, oh, wow so, yeah you, you see that and all of a sudden like all of your prepared questions about like sean everett and like guitar tones go out the window but um you know with this record um, I like the first two Always records, and they were kind of a fascinating case study to me because, uh, you know, they sound, in a way, they're, like, not at all uh, fashionable. You know, it's a kind of indie rock that people have compared to, say, like, Camera Obscura or, like, you know, they threw out, like, C86, Sarah Records, Teenage Fan Club. And yet, um, and they're also, like, very, uh, not reclusive, but they're not out there on the internet. Uh, they're, they've replaced Japan Droids as the one Canadian band on Polyvinyl that follows nobody on Twitter. Um, and But yet they still manage to be like super popular in a way that defies any sort of uh, explanation if you're just thinking about narratives or trends or things like that. And, you know, it's the best explanation is that just, they just make better songs than everybody else. Um, and uh, I could get the sense that they were a band that was maybe seen as like underappreciated in the critical sphere um, back then. You know, they're not the kind of records that knock you on your ass. Maybe the singles do. And so I think there was this expectation leading into this, especially with Sean Everett being involved, that this was going to be the massive leveling up. Like this was going to right the minor injustices of the past. And this is going to be the one where always is like, like a top 10 album of the year type band. And, uh, on the one hand, that makes me more excited about this record. And on the other, I think it maybe set expectations that a record of this sort might not be capable of meeting. And so I find myself still kind of ambivalent. Like, I know it's good. I like this record a lot. And I also, unfortunately, and this is just like music critic brain, thinking of it as like, okay, but is it something that is like a top 10 lock? Is this like always always is his lonerism uh and i'm just curious about what you think about this well i think the interesting thing about always is that 
They don't strike me as a band that anyone's going to ever say they made the album of the year in the year that the album came out. But they might say that 10 years later, that it was the best album of that year. Like, mm. I think about their first record, which to me is still my favorite. I love all of, I love all three records, but the first one uh, stands out to me, maybe because uh, Archie Marry Me is on that record, which is such a classic song. And I just feel like that's a song I can play over and over again. And it feels like a song that came out in the sixties almost to me. It, it, it has that kind of timeless uh, vibe to it. I don't think that record was even close to my top 10 when that album came out. I think it was a record that I tended to put on and think this is like really good, but it's not blowing me away. You know, it's just a nice record. Number 39 status. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. But here we are eight years later and I don't know how many like other albums from 2014 I listened to more than that record. Like that's a record that I always feel compelled periodically to return to, especially this time of the year. I feel like they're a great fall band. They're I think maybe the best band working right now that makes autumn music. Um and I just think that a lot of their songs are designed to be played a thousand times and where you don't get sick of it. And maybe it's the thousandth time that you hear it and you realize like, wow, I'm not sick of this song yet that you realize like how good the song is. And that's when you get blown away. I mean, it's, it's slow release capsule type music. And I think that's true of blue rev. I mean, there are two ways to look at it. I, I agree with you. I don't think that this record is radically different than the first two, it is a little bit noisier, it's a little more muscular, but for the most part, it sounds like always. And maybe for some people that could be construed as a criticism. For me, I feel like, especially in the long run, that's going to be a strength of this record. Because, and again, this sounds like a weird thing to say because it could be construed <laughs> as, a, as, as, a, as a put down, but I feel like they're just super focused on writing really good songs, doing what they do, it's not going to be radically different from album to album, but there's also no one else, I think, writing songs in this style as well as they do. And I appreciate the fact that after five years, they put out this record and it doesn't seem like they took five years to make it. I mean, I'm sure they didn't spend five years working on this record, but it doesn't feel labored over. It doesn't have that sort of flop sweat <laughs> feel to it sometimes that records like this can have. It's that just Diet a, Mountain Dew sweat. <laughs> well, yeah, just that like we're trying too hard yeah. type thing. Molly uh, made, it, made a point to clarify, you know, even though they're working with Sean Everett, who is like the maestro of like synthy, big, glossy Americana music, even though he's Canadian, um, that they didn't want to make a, like in their words, like a big, expensive, glossy synth record, which I think is great to point out because you know, a band, an indie band of their ilk on uh, their third record, like that's what you do. You make the big synthy record where it's like, yeah, we've been listening to a lot of pop in the in the tour van, and you know, we're just really feel like we're exploring our pop side. Like they didn't do that. They or, it's like, or we're gonna make our pandemic record, or we're gonna yeah. make our big statement record. I mean, yeah. one of the I think one of the things I find really refreshing about Always is that they do exist in their own bubble, and they don't seem like they're chasing the discourse or anything. They just do what they do and they do it extremely well. And maybe it's a little unsexy to say like 
this band, they're just like really good at craftsmanship, you know, but I think that's what they are. They're really good at song craft. And I hear a lot of bands that aren't, you know, nope. or they, they, they have like a couple good songs and that's it. Always, always delivers consistently great albums that have just tons of good songs on them. Like they're the masters of, of like the 10 song 38 minute album. Although this album's a little bit longer. Maybe 14 songs, 38 minutes. <laughs> and yeah. And if there is a criticism I would make is that you could probably cut a couple songs from the record. But other than that, I mean, I don't think there's any clunkers on the record. Oh no, none. But uh, yeah, it's just a really good always record. If you love always, you will love this record. It's good always music. And there's a lot of people trying to make always music who aren't always, and they're, they don't do it as well as they do. So this is the best example of that. Yeah, if like you want to hear some examples of like bands that are trying to do always music but not as good, like I'll give you an invite to like seventy five percent of the shit in my promo pile. <laughs> All right, well let's get to the next item on our agenda this week, and it is not the new Bjork album. It's the newish Bjork album because this came out at the end of September. We didn't talk about it in our previous episode just because neither one of us had a promo of it. So we had to At wait. At least I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, I, I checked my box. I didn't have it. So we had to wait for the record to come out and listen to it like everyone else. And I've been listening to this record this week. And I, I wanted to get your take on this because my feeling about Bjork in 2022 is that there's been an attempt, I think, to correct some of the wrongs of the nineties with Bjork where in the nineties, when really she was at, at her artistic peak, I think I, I, I feel like most people would agree that her best records are post and homogenic. Mm-hmm. There might be some, uh, stands for, you know, some of the early two thousands records, but like those two records came out in like the late nineties, I think are acknowledged as, as classics, of the era and Bjork in the nineties, I think was critically acclaimed. A lot of people loved her. She was looked at as a great musician, but there was also an element of, of how she was discussed where she was basically reduced to this like quirky weirdo, like a Sprite, you know, yeah, type caricature. Um, who played her on SNL? Someone played her on (laughs) SNL. Uh, I don't know if that I, was. I, I have no idea. You're, I, you, I am out. I am out of my element here. Like, Chris, like Kristen Wiig, maybe, or someone like would play her on uh, SNL, and it was very much like the sort of goofy eccentric uh, type uh, again caricature with her. And I think there's a perception that um, Bjork hasn't gotten her due. So there's been a, I think an effort to, to correct that a bit. And I feel like that seeped a little bit into the conversation about this latest record. And I I just know for me, you know, the thing with Bjork where I think her sweet spot is, is, you know, if you listen to post and homogenic, what's great about those records is that on one hand, they're experimental, they're forward thinking, they are eccentric, they are pretty weird, but they're also really immediate records with, genuine pop songs and when Bjork can find that middle ground between art and pop where it's equal parts both it's really magical and powerful and it's something that she did as well as anyone in that period I feel like her recent work and this includes the new record Fasora I think I'm saying that right actually I know I'm probably saying it wrong (laughs) but the thing about this record is that I feel like 
when I listen to it, I admire it the way I admire architecture. You know, it's very well put together. It's very beautiful in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, if it's architecture, I don't have a key to the door to get inside. You know, it's not accessible to me. I don't feel like there's enough pop, really, on this record. At least from what I want from Bjork. And that's where it, it falls a little flat for me. Again, it's it's wildly ambitious. I think it's impressive on a technical level. And I do appreciate that Bjork, I don't think, is resting on her laurels. I think she is taking a big swing with this record. But at least for now, and maybe I'll feel differently if this seeps into my system over time, um, I find myself being a little frustrated by it. I, I don't really love the record as much as I appreciate its existence. Does that square with your response to this at all? I mean, because this album has been well-reviewed. A lot of people like it, and I get why it's been well-reviewed. But I don't know. I, I think it's more impressive than good, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, just right before we started recording, uh, I saw something on Twitter where I think it's the coach of the Atlanta Falcons who said Tom Brady doesn't get enough credit for his sustained success. And, you know, this made me think of like the Bjork conversation as well, because, I mean, you're correct in that, you know, Bjork was you know, someone who was like guaranteed to be in like the top 10 of every year end list that she released a record. And that includes up to Vespertine as well in 2001. Um, and, you know, I think there was this view of her as this kind of like, you know, like this forest sprite, you know, just taking off people's projections about Iceland and so forth. Um, and that it, it, it also, it just reminds me of like what we were talking about when like Joni Mitchell had, uh, came back to Newport Folk Festival. Like people would say, oh, we've not appreciated Joni Mitchell. We've, you know, she's underrated only like only because she hasn't been, as you know documented as much as bob dylan and specifically bob dylan and i think that's the case with like bjork and radiohead um you know there's this like ambient hum that we need to right the wrongs of the 90s by elevating bjork above specifically radiohead not and, and not like like as if it's like a competition or something like that and you know what like i think those albums of the 90s um like you were saying, they're very forward thinking. They're very ambitious, very, like very original, um, in a way that I don't think Radiohead always is. And when I listen to them now, I'm like, damn, how would my life be different if, you know, I was as obsessed with Bjork as I was with Radiohead. Um, but you're, but nowadays it's like, I think that there hasn't been an artist as consistently praised as much as Bjork, but I think that there's also, um, this sense that she's maybe perhaps like underrated or underappreciated because these new albums, they are indeed art pieces. You know, I think that ever since she started particularly working with Arca, um, the producer um, on her 2010 albums, that the songs are more likely to be like eight minutes and not really following any sort of pop structure. It's more like opera or just like a P like an art installation. And um, you know, I appreciate them. It's like the kind of album where like, I'm very, very, very well aware that like, I'm in the presence of genius uh, in ways that I probably can't understand. And also this gets to a previous mailbag question of like, what do you do with albums that are difficult or like you don't enjoy, but you feel you need to get into because of the narrative? 
Yeah, 10 years ago, I probably would be listening to this album more just to get a sense of like what it was like to listen to music and be a commenter in 2022. But now it's just like, yeah, yeah, this shit isn't for me. I'm going to go listen to Hyper Ballad again. And, you know, look, it's this is just me maybe being stuck in the 90s and Bjork leaving me behind. She did make a mention of how, you know, male critics such as myself forsake her because for songs about, uh, as she put it, uh, tits, beer, and heroin abuse. Um, you know us. We love Jet. We love Fiddler here on uh, IndieCast. Yeah, I, th- that quote was pretty funny. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I take that in the spirit in which it was given, I think, where I think her tongue was in cheek probably a little bit. At yeah. least in terms of the tits, beer, and heroin thing. Um, I feel like the tits and beer bands are separate from the heroin bands. I think <laughs> the heroin bands are focused on heroin, and then you have the tits and beer bands over there. It's a different, uh, you know, we don't want to mix and match that. I will say, I mean, I think there is a danger sometimes in overpraising a record like this for people who aren't familiar with the back catalog and may assume that every record is as difficult as this one. I, I will say... And I don't think this is being stuck in the '90s. That, like, you know, the 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 records that she put out in the '90s, I think, are better represent are better representation of what she is at her best. And again, I think that combination of pop and art that she was able to accomplish at that time uh, really distinguishes her and sets her apart from the pack of of other '90s artists. And this record. Again, as impressive as it is from a technical perspective, again, I feel like it, it's the equivalent of a movie that just has like incredible special effects and costume design and stage design, but maybe the script isn't very good. I mean, that's my feeling with this record. I feel like it might be an album that you have to spend more time with to have a fully formed take on it, so I'll, I'll, I'll put that in as a caveat, but... Um, if you're new to Bjork and you find this album to be a little obtuse, I would encourage you to go into the back catalog. Those records might be a better entry point for you. So that's all I'll say about that. Um, let's get to our final topic here. And this is a feel-good story here on IndieCast. It's about Steve Lacey. And for those of you who don't know who Steve Lacey is, he's a 24-year-old singer, songwriter, guitarist. You might know him from a band called The Internet that is associated with Odd Future. Not to be um, confused with Soul Asylum, who was the internet in the 1990s. Yes, exactly. We referred to Soul Asylum as the internet in 1992, but this is a band called The Internet. And, um, you know, Lacey is someone I think that a lot of people know because of who he's collaborated with. He's He's been on records uh, by Kendrick Lamar, Solange, uh, Vampire Weekend, uh, but he hasn't really made a name for himself as a solo artist until now. And now he's made it in a big way because he currently has the number one song in America. It's called Bad Habit. And what might be the most amazing thing about this song is that it actually displaced Harry Styles from the top of the pop charts. His song, As It Was, uh, was uh, number one for uh, 15 weeks, which makes it one of the longest running chart toppers of all time. And here comes Steve Lacey, the David to Harry Styles' Goliath, with this song, Bad Habit. And uh, I think it's a pretty cool story. I mean, he, um, I don't know if you've heard the song Bad Habit. I have. Or his record. It really is in that, you know, 
I mean, I hope this is probably a lazy comparison, but it is in that <laughs> in that Frank Ocean lane where you know he's really bringing together different kinds of music. There's a little bit of R and B in there. There's a, there's some rock in there. There's some psychedelia in there. It doesn't strike me as a song that would hit number one, which is maybe the coolest thing about this. It seems like a song that might be number one on a critic's list, hmm. but. I'm a little surprised that this song has taken off the way that it has, I'm, and I'm and I'm heartened by it. I mean, I'm, this is from the New York Times. Um, it's uh, been streamed 20 million times and 40 million airplay audience impressions. A measurement I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, it's a measurement of a song's popularity on radio stations. So this song has been a big radio hit as well as a streaming hit. Um, what's your take on this? I mean, this is like a pretty incredible story, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, you know, we usually wouldn't talk about like what's the number one song in America, but uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of 2020 when, or even maybe even last year when Glass Animals somehow made it to number one. Um, it's just fascinating from a cultural perspective, and yeah, uh, I listened. To I would this say song. it's even more incredible than that because Lacey, I feel like, has had like a pretty indie prestigious career up until now i mean i just yeah. mentioned like all these artists that he's worked with like he's he he would strike me as a guy that would be a like a sideman to like more Absolutely. famous people mm-hmm. and yet here he is like he's now a genuine pop success himself yeah and also like he's like a super talented really good looking guy as well so i mean like it seemed like he was sort of born for this just so long as the song was there and that was like kind of the thing that i had always heard about him it's like this guy is massively talented. God, if some, if we could just get him involved with some like songwriters, he'd go straight to the top. But um, also, we'd be remiss to not mention that any time I see a song with the title Bad Habit, I'm inclined to think of the Offspring song uh, from Smash, where they just kind of, uh, the music comes out like that, you stupid, dumb shit, goddamn, mo-. like the, you know what I'm fucking talking about if you're listening to Andy Cash. I mean, I'm not... I- <laughs> I'm not sure how many people out there are going deep on the offspring smash. I, I don't I don't know if that's as common of a touchstone as as you might think it is. I love that you that immediately came to mind for yeah. you. But by the way, you want to know what else came out on October 6, 1992? Not Smash, but the Offspring's first album, Ignition. Uh, uh, so big day for us. But when I listened to this song, like what what came up, just tying back to our like 2010s indie start indie. 2010s indie kids starter kit pack this uh, this song sounds like the product of it because they're like i don't think this song exists without currents um there's a little bit of like that mac demarco kind of slack vocal and guitar to it obviously some of the tyler creators albums where he sings more some frank ocean i mean i think that and i mean this in like a positive way um, it just seems like the natural product of the past five years of music. And the fact that it reached number one, I, 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 I'm just dying to know like the logistics of this, you know, because it, I don't think it was like a TikTok. Maybe it was a TikTok sensation. Um, it probably was, but it wasn't on TV. There wasn't, it just seemed to happen so organically, uh, in a way that, um, you know, makes me root for the guy. Uh, yeah, regardless I mean, of what I think about the song. Yeah, I mean, there was... It's a good song, though. There was some press about this record when it came out, but, like, no more than you would see for any high-profile indie release. You know, like, the new Always record has gotten probably as much press as Steve Lacey did in the lead-up to his current album. Um, 
yeah, it really does seem like an organic success story. And it, again, it speaks to the enduring influence of Odd Future. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. an incubator for like huge pop stars. I mean, like there's just been so much that has come out of that collective. And I don't know if you would have predicted that in two, in, in 2010. I mean, they seemed like they would the, the, like it was like this nihilistic group. I mean, that was that's what was exciting about them. I mean, Odd Future, I think they were the last sort of like outrage music celebrities. Like people that got famous for just making people angry. Like that that's a model that seems to have been totally abandoned in the last decade. You know, I can't think of like the last person who got famous just because they were obnoxious and got on people's nerves. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we could probably think of it in like the Twitch or like the TikTok realm. But as far as music goes, like I thought like their, their ceiling was like, you know, maybe they'd be like a new like Wu Tang. But yeah, I mean, I remember someone saying that Tyler, the creator, like back in 2010, it's like, this guy's the next Kurt Cobain. And I thought like, Oh, that's fucking ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, if you're looking at like the, t- the before and after of 2010, or at least the end of the like animal collective uh, indie rock hegemony, like that's our future. It is clearly the fault line. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call recommendation corner where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So one of the reasons I haven't been able to, uh, you know, invest as much time in the Bjork record as I like is that I've been um, putting out like a lot of, uh, putting out a lot of content this week. Um, the Always piece uh, dropped on Thursday and today um, there's going to be a piece going up uh, at Stereo Gum on the new Will Chef album. Um, he is the former frontman for Ockerville River. Uh, we met up one day in LA, we walked around Hollywood Forever Cemetery and probably talked for the better part of three hours. (laughs) Um, uh, it was one of the most, uh, expansive, uh, interviews I've ever done, long transcribed, but very fascinating. Um, being able to talk to someone who has survived, you know, the mid aughts indie peak and has continued to make great music, uh, just real, a lot of really great insight. So this is his first solo record. It's called Nothing Special. And I'm here to tell you, people, it's quite special. Um, it, you know, it's this sort of band that I think we had talked about them on IndieCast in the past that like people had kind of taken for granted um, since their peak of Black Sheep Boy and stage names. And um, this kind of reminds you of everything you liked about Ockerville River, you know, whether it's the big uh, crescendos with horns and guitar solos or just the very expansive kind of talk, talk slash Astral Weeks um, ruminative songs. Um, And it brings it all back together in a way that I find to be very emotionally compelling because it's not just about like him trying to leave Ockerville River behind or talk about like his friends who have died or sobriety or L.A., but um, just kind of in general about like what it means to transcend, you know, the angst of your early 20s, because he's someone who still gets asked to play like Black Sheep Boy songs. And, you know, that's a song that's very angry. That's an album that's very angry, very vengeful. Um, and I find this album to be like very restorative in that regard. Like, how do you move on past the pa- past the uh, image of yourself you've defined? Um Plus, you know what? If anything, it makes you want to go back and check out the uh, Ockerville River albums that you may have missed out on. So um, 
that's the recommendation I have today. You know, for the longest time, Ockerville River was the band that I was in love with, and then I fell out of love with them, and I still had a shirt of theirs that I continued to wear after I didn't really care about them anymore, just because I love the shirt so much. So maybe this album will get me back into Will Chef and Ockerville River, and I can feel good about wearing this shirt again, because it's a very nice shirt, and... Good material, good design. <laughs> it's always a bummer, though, when you have the shirt that you love, but you don't really love the band anymore, so you feel like a fraud if you're still wearing it. Um, my recommendation here, it's similar in a way to the Steve Lacey story that we talked about, although it's country music, it's not alt R&B, but uh, <laughs> this is an artist who has come from a world, I think, where he was putting out songs online And he gathered a big following, and now he has one of the biggest albums in the country. And in a way, I feel like he's come out of nowhere. At least he has for me. This record actually came out in the spring, and I've only recently got into it, but it's sort of taken over my world. And that album is called American Heartbreak, and it's by a 26-year-old guy named Zach Bryan. And uh, this is a... uh, just a sprawling record. We've had a lot of big records this year, but this might be the most sprawling of all. 34 songs on this record. Uh, And you may look at that track list and feel like that's excessive, too many songs. And in a way it is, because I've had this record for a while and I'm still absorbing it. There's a lot of material. It's basically like three records of material on one. But I got to say, this guy is incredibly consistent. The songs, I think, are pretty consistently very good to great i would liken him to like a jason isbell or a or a tyler childers but a little more lo-fi a little more down home a little raw a little kind of like rough around the edges and that's really what i like about it uh definitely in that americana acoustic guitar harmonica and fiddle type music but again he takes that simple uh, framework and he's able to do a lot of different things with it and uh it's been fascinating to see him blow up this year he, I, mm-hmm. I was sad he played here in minneapolis last weekend and uh, i wasn't able to go, go to the show because i was coming home from a family event i couldn't get back in time he played an outdoor venue uh, fit four thousand people and the show was sold out i assume that when he comes to town next time he'll be playing a local arena It seems like his popularity is just exploding. And he is someone, too, that I think could definitely make inroads in the indie world, even though Mm. I haven't really heard much conversation in indie uh, circles about this record yet. But I really feel like he's one of those people that can really slot into different music scenes really well. Because it is a country record, but it is more of like a, again, like a rough-hewn singer-songwriter record. And I think it's like one of the best examples of that that I've heard in a while. So again, American Heartbreak, Zach Bryan, check out that record. If you're into that kind of singer songwriter, harmonica and acoustic music, it's going to hit you right where you live. Can uh, I quote the Tennessean? Because they wrote that the album ranges from demo like ruminations to full fledged heart rock anthems, as well as an untamed restlessness and blurry eyed angst. See, I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come on. This is uh, this is definitely my kind of record. I think you would like some of it too, Ian, for sure. Yes. 
I, I, you know what, like just reading, uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and he calls it an effort at trying to explain what a 26 year old man in America is like. There's love, loss, revelry, resentment, forgiveness. Like this strikes me just like superficially as maybe the album I would like center my entire identity around when I was living in Georgia at the age of 26. So yes, yes, exactly. Definitely drinking a beer on the back porch type music. It really fits the bill with that. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.